Welcome to In My Backyard, an open conversation about children and mental health. We all know a child who's struggling, whether that child tells us or not. In this podcast, we speak with experts on the many factors of emotional distress in children, how to address those factors, and how to create a community where all children can be healthy and happy. This podcast is made possible through generous donations from supporters and listeners like you. Please visit tgclb.org or text HOPE to 562-262-5689 to make a one-time donation or join our Hope and Healing Club to become a monthly donor today. Your host is Trisha Costales, CEO of the Guidance Center, a nonprofit children's mental health agency in Long Beach, California. I'm Trisha Costales, your host of In My Backyard. I'm a licensed clinical social worker and the chief executive officer of the Guidance Center, a nonprofit children's mental health agency serving 3,500 children and families every year. We've spoken in previous episodes about how mental health disorders in children are often manifested in behaviors that get them in trouble. Children don't use words to tell us their struggles. As such, their behavior becomes a form of communication as to what is happening internally. Their behavior can cause problems in school, trouble in the family system, socially with friends, and in the community. We also know that, increasingly, it can lead to serious mental health struggles up to and including suicide. As Dr. Bruce Perry of the Child Trauma Academy has written, All children experience stressful events, moving homes, welcoming a new sibling, losing a grandparent. When a child is exposed to stressful events, the brain triggers an adaptive response. For some, this might be a state of hyperarousal, or what we might call flight or fight. In others, it might trigger a dissociative response, or what we call freezing. For many, there might be a combination of both. We all experience stress throughout our lives. For a child raised with at least one healthy adult relationship and a relatively trauma-free upbringing, experiencing normal stressors is a positive thing. They learn to adapt and grow to become resilient adults who can navigate the everyday pressures of life. Different outcomes emerge when a child is exposed to prolonged experiences, child abuse, a chaotic home, community violence, profound poverty, and the like. Those very same brain responses that are adaptive in a child with a stable upbringing, flight, fight, or freeze, make a child from a persistently traumatic environment vulnerable to troubles in the external world. As stated by Dr. Perry, their baseline state of arousal is activated. When a stressor arises, that child can escalate to a state of fear very quickly. Their traumatic backgrounds mean they have less capacity to tolerate normal stressors as compared to their more resilient peers. I conceptualize this as a cup of tea. A child with normal levels of life stressors has a small amount of tea in their cup. When stressors arise, imagined as drops of tea being added to the cup, the overall liquid level remains low enough that it is manageable. For a child with very high levels of trauma, imagined as a full cup of tea, adding new life stressors or drops to the cup 
will make the scalding liquid flow over. Today we have the great pleasure of speaking with Rebecca Korb, a registered clinical social worker in the Guidance Center's Long Beach School-based program. Rebecca is going to speak to us today about how mental health treatment works with traumatized children. Welcome, Rebecca. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, for our audience and for me, will you please share a little bit about yourself? Yeah, my name is Rebecca. And again, thank you so much for having me. Uh, trauma is definitely something I'm extremely passionate about, especially in our children, in our tiny humans. I got my master's degree in social work with a concentration in child and family well-being. And I've been working with tiny humans for over 15 years in various different capacities. And again, just really interested. How does trauma impact child development? How does it impact the family system? How does it impact the whole picture? Um, and I think for me, what really sparked my interest was the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study, which I'm sure you're familiar with, also known as the ACE Study. Um, I could do a whole other podcast on that, but a quick reader's digest of that is um, it was in the late 1990s, and it was done by the CDC and Kaiser Permanente, and they basically found that exposure to adverse childhood experiences, which were different types of trauma um, in your first 18 years of life are strongly correlated with nine out of 10 of the leading causes of death in the United States. So it became really obvious that the things that are happening at home, um, the things that we're exposed to are really impacting our physical health as well as our mental health. And so that really, really sold me. Um, I also experienced trauma as a kid myself, and I didn't have a therapist. And so that's my why. That's why I'm here. Um, and again, just very excited to be here and talking about trauma. I'm uh, very excited to have you here. And when I did see clients, um, which I did for many years, I don't know if you knew this, but trauma was my area of expertise as well. Uh, I definitely have a love for this work. So I'm excited to know that uh, you share that passion. So thank you for being here with us. Um, I'm going to dive right in. So we all, I think, understand that trauma would have a negative impact on child development. But I think we may have mixed understanding of what trauma means. What kind types of trauma do you see in the kids that you serve? Yeah, definitely. Such a good question. So whenever I share that I work with children that have experienced trauma, they're always like, well, what does that mean? And so I think there's the quote unquote textbook trauma that we go to, which would be, you know, the different types of abuse, physical, emotional, sexual, there's the neglect. Um, and then there's all the other types of trauma, which can be parental separation, divorce, it can be medical trauma, it can be food insecurity, experiencing homelessness or being unhoused, uh, community violence, uh, violence in schools, even bullying, intimate partner violence, refugee trauma, parental incarceration, um, there's more out there. Those are just the first ones that come to mind. Um, but yeah, I think trauma can mean all sorts of different things. And it's definitely more than just the quote unquote textbook trauma that we often think of. Specifically more than the child abuse that we think Correct. of when we yes. think of trauma. Yeah, exactly. Now, you know, Rebecca, our families don't typically, sometimes they do, but don't typically come to us seeking treatment saying, my child has experienced trauma. 
that's that's not what they bring as the presenting problem for the most part. So how then do you see trauma manifested in the children? Yeah, and I think circling back to the intro here, that their behaviors become a form of communication for what's really going on. So oftentimes families come in because of the behaviors. Um, a lot of times we call them misbehaviors. And I come from this framework and perspective where every behavior makes sense. And for me, it's really what is this behavior trying to tell us and what need is not being met. So a lot of times these behaviors might be difficulty paying attention in class, might be fidgety. It could be the depression, sadness, the anxiety, worrying, um, changes in sleep habits. It might be all of a sudden becoming really attached and having a hard time at drop off, um, could be the acting out. So really for me, it's, I'm focused on the behaviors um, and oftentimes a shift in behavior. So something new that started happening. I mean, that that's, I think, really important. What you just said about the shift in the behaviors or new things. Um, that's sort of a mantra I say to, to parents all the time. You look for changes in your child's behavior and and then, you know, if you see changes, that's what clues us into that something has happened, something's going on, they're struggling with something. So I'm really glad that you brought up that point. You know, we all experience stress. Um, it can sometimes even be severe stress. We're all exposed right now to all these graphic images of war an entire generation of children witness 9-11. We have earthquakes, hurricanes, we just mass shootings. We just had another one last week. How is the experience of the children you see, their trauma experience, how is it different from sort of our collective experience? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. And I think it's important to note that both can be traumatic. You know, the children that we're talking about in this specific type of childhood trauma and the collective 9-11, the hurricanes, earthquakes can also be traumatic as well. But I think for me, the distinction here really comes down to one of them, you know, the earthquakes, 9-11, we're all experiencing as a country or as a community um, and this other type of trauma in the kids that we're working with is happening at home. It's isolating. It's on your own. You don't have your neighbors to turn to, to kind of go through with it. And I think, or to experience with, um, and I think the other part for me too, is that a lot of these kids, the trauma they're experiencing is happening at home where they're supposed to feel safe, where it's happening with caregiver or by caregiver who's supposed to be keeping them safe and keeping them away from the harm. And so for me, that's really the difference is one is happening to all of us and it's more distant. And the other one, the one that we're working with is happening at home. It's personal, it's isolating, um, and it feels like it shouldn't be happening. Well, and I, I think that you did make that important point too, that, you know, 9-11, we all sat and talked with our neighbors and processed that and, you know, together and, um, and a child could turn to their parent as that was happening. Whereas in, in the cases of the kids we see, they don't have that support system. And that, that does make such a huge difference. You know, all of our mental health treatment, it starts with an assessment and a diagnosis. Um, so when you're in session with a client, how do you assess for trauma and trauma reactions? Like what, what is it that you look for? 
Yeah. So I think like we just talked about, it's those changes in behaviors. It's tell me about your tiny human, tell me about your kiddo. And when they start kind of talking about those behaviors, I'm, I'm curious, you know, Oh, has it always been that way? Has Jimmy always had trouble paying attention in class or did that change? Or, you know, has Jimmy always had nightmares or when did those start? And so one, I think it's about being really curious. And then two, it's also looking for those shifts in behaviors, those changes. Um, And so asking those important questions, I think, Circling back to, you know, kind of those symptoms we might say about trauma, um, has sleep change, mood change, increase in misbehaviors, have their grades dropped? I'm a member of our school-based team, so a lot of times I'm working within our school system, and so have their, has their attendance changed, have their school grades dropped all of a sudden? Um, just really looking for any behavioral changes and then being curious about the timing and kind of what was going on around then. Um, without making assumptions, because we never know. Um, So for me, it's really this curious approach during the assessment. So I I have a question, and it might be a long-winded one, so bear with me. (laughs) Like, uh, you know, we've all had clients come in where we're seeing this, these behaviors and we suspect things. We, we wonder, we worry, is there perhaps domestic violence going on at home? Is there a drinking problem? Is there perhaps uh, sexual abuse happening based on the behaviors that I'm seeing? You wonder. So this child comes in and you, you see these behaviors that are making you concerned. What questions do you ask to suss out the source of that stress, the source of that trauma that you're seeing in the behaviors? How do you get to um, the root? Right. And that that's a hard one. That is a dance. Um, I think the way in which you word your questions, the way you carry yourself, your mannerisms, non-judgmental, being curious, being empathetic, being understanding, I think that's the first step. And then in terms of the actual questions, you know, I want to know just as much about the client as I do about caregiver, about family, about caregiver's history, family's history, living situation. And so for me, it's a more holistic assessment as opposed to strictly asking about kiddo. Um, I'm asking what does a day, what does a normal day look like at home for a child? Who does child, how does child get along with siblings, with caregiver? How does that relationship look? How, if there's multiple caregivers in their house, what's their relationship like? So really kind of exploring relationships. Um, And again, for me, it's, I want to know about everyone in the family as opposed to just client. Uh, A lot of times it's through observation during assessment. You know, we do our assessment with both client and caregiver present. And so I can get a lot of information just through observing how, how does caregiver act when I'm talking to client and vice versa. And that can give me kind of an idea in terms of attachment. Um, That's another thing I want to know about attachment. What is school drop off like? Um, And so I think it's a dance for me. It's not necessarily so much about a specific question. Uh, I use my observation skills and I think coming coming across as curious, genuine, empathetic. I think you'll get the parents talking, the caregivers talking, um, and also knowing that you're not going to get all that information right away and that's okay and that it's going to be a process and the, my favorite thing I learned was that assessment is ongoing. It's There's no such thing as a one and done assessment and so 
maybe I'm not going to get all that information right away and that's okay. Um, and just continuing to assess as therapy goes on, I think is important as well. I would agree that that's so vital because as they get to know you better um, and you remain curious, mm -hmm. then those things come up, don't they? Right. And something I love to plug is, you know, we do have this ACE study and we do have an ACE screener. And one way to find out about adverse childhood experiences and trauma exposure is through screening for ACEs. And, you know, there is kind of a movement right now pushing for mandatory ACE screeners, whether that's in the pediatrician office or that's mental health clinicians. And so since I'm talking to our CEO right now, I figure I might as well make that plug of, you know, that is one way of going about it. Um, I do kind of always keep that in the back of my mind, those questions. Um, it's not always appropriate. It's not always the right time, but I think that is kind of guiding my interest and my questions and the information I'm looking for. I think the ACEs study is a brilliant tool. So uh, I, I support you <laughs> in your interest in that for sure. Um, so how do you go about then getting the child and family on board? Like, let's say you think the parental relationship is problematic. There's violence or there's drinking. You suspect that there might be physical abuse. Um, how do you specifically kind of get to the bottom of that? And then how do you talk to the family about it without losing treat them in the treatment process? Like, I guess what I'm, you know, so often the families come in and like, my kid's the problem. He doesn't listen. She doesn't listen. She's mad all the time. And then we're, we're flipping that narrative, aren't we? Mm -hmm. Um, if we're bringing in violence in the home or drinking in the home. Um, so how do you get to that without right. the family just saying we're withdrawing from treatment? Of course. And that's, again, a tricky dance. And it is a dance, you know, of wanting, first and foremost, my number one goal is the client safety and ensuring that. And that can be really hard when we have a suspicion or we maybe even know that they're not safe at home and there is abuse going on at home. And so navigating that relationship and building that relationship and building that trust, that for me is the foundation of all of the work that I do with my families. And so it takes time. Um, it's based, you know, it's building a strong relationship based on trust, uh, and non-judgmental. So going back to that curious approach, you know, there's, there's ways where you can ask questions that make you feel like you're at fault or that you did something wrong. And then there's ways that can, you can ask questions that are, I'm just curious and I just want to know. And so going with, with the latter, um, and so making sure, making sure caregiver feels comfortable disclosing, um, I think psychoeducation is really big here, educating what is therapy, what is therapy all about, what is it not about. Um, I think I'm sure you've experienced this too as a social worker. There is a stigma with that word, and you know, oh, social workers take children away, and so addressing that sometimes and being really straightforward about our role as a mandated reporter and limits of confidentiality. So I think for me, it's that non-judgmental stance, that curiosity. Um, and then the psychoeducation being very clear and upfront about our role as mandated reporters, what therapy is, what it isn't. Um, I think another big thing for me too is the populations that we work with. We work with our community's most vulnerable populations. And so understanding the different levels of oppression that they might be experiencing and the systemic 
racism and all the different isms and all of the different ways that their intersectionality, intersectional identities create these unique experiences of oppression. And so coming from that place of understanding that life is hard and they might have all of these battles that they're experiencing that we might not know about. And so coming just from this place of understanding, I think then opens the door for this relationship to build and flourish. And that to me is kind of how, how we dive into this work. I, I think that was a really beautiful answer. Thank you. But now I'm going to throw in a, a question I didn't prepare you for, but <laughs> you opened the door to it and it's something I feel so strongly about. You mentioned that we're mandated reporters mm -hmm. and I don't know if all of our listeners know what that means. Mm -hmm. So could you just touch on what mandated reporting is? Yeah. So that is a broad term for all sorts of different folks, but pretty much anybody who works with children in any capacity, I would say, um, are what's called a mandated reporter. And that means that we are obligated by law to play a role in keeping children safe. And so if we were to hear anything during therapy, um, well, let's rewind. Everything in therapy, what I think is so beautiful about therapy is that it's confidential. So that means that anything that me and my client talk about stays between us. I can't tell mom, I can't tell teacher, I can't tell principal, it stays between us. And then the mandated reporter part is kind of the exception to that. So if our kiddo is to mention one of three things that have to do with safety, that is a time when I'm mandated to call and consult with Child Protective Services. And so those three instances are if the child discloses anything about wanting to kill themselves, if they disclose anything about wanting to kill somebody else, or if they disclose anything about an adult hurting them. So that could be like different types of abuse. Generally, that's the what it is, different types of abuse. Um, so those three things that all have to do with our children's safety are times when we're mandated by law um, to break that confidentiality and, um, and do something to make sure our kids stay safe. So Rebecca, you mentioned that we are mandated to do those reports and, you know, I feel really strongly that that's a huge ethical responsibility that we have. Um, so let's say you're with, you're with a child and they disclose physical abuse, you know, you have to make a report. Um, how do you, that goes to the question of, you know, how do you not lose parent, the family and treatment? Um, so now you have to make a report, whether you choose to tell parent or not that you're making it, they're going to figure out where it came from. So mm -hmm. how do you navigate your mandate to protect this child with your commitment to continuing to engage this family in treatment? How do you balance those? Mm -hmm. How do they not say I'm out of here? It is so hard. Um, I think I think it is one of the hardest parts of our job. In fact, I just made a report an hour before this interview. So it happens, unfortunately, way too often. Um, and again, I, it's part of the job. It's I love working with trauma, but working with trauma oftentimes means having to make these reports. And I think I had to learn really early on in my first year internship that sometimes that relationship is ruptured and sometimes those ruptures do happen. And that does that mean you can't repair from the rupture? No. Uh, doesn't mean it's going to make it a lot harder. Yes. Um, but I think for me, the first thing that I had to learn was to how to be okay. And that's a, that's a strong word, how to cope with knowing that that rupture, that break in trust might happen. Um, 
And then two was, okay, how do we move forward? And I think something that can be beautiful and it's collateral beauty and the hardship of making a report is that you can learn to repair that relationship. And I think a lot of times with trauma, our children, you know, have experienced a rupture in relationship. Maybe it's with caregiver who was abusive. And through my relationship, that therapeutic relationship, we can work through that in a way that is safe, in a way, in a safe environment, in a supportive, nurturing environment. And I can model and show them how to work through a break in trust. And so in a way it can be healing, it can be beautiful, it can set the precedent for future uh, ruptures in relationships. But at the, at the end of the day, it is really hard. Um, I think, you know, you nailed it. There's no rule that says that we have to tell parents when we make a report, it's a clinical judgment. Um, for me, I, like to keep parent involved. And for me, it usually comes down to the safety of my client. So if it's a physical abuse report and I'm worried about my kid getting in trouble because they told me that dad hits them, I'm not going to call parent and say, Hey, I called CPS because then the likelihood of my child getting hit when they get home is higher. But if it's, you know, a different type of report, and I think that it would help family to know there are, so it's, it's such a clinical ju judgment in terms of informing parent or not. I think for me, I like to inform client um, and tell client when I'm going to be calling. That's again, a judgment call depending on age. I work with elementary age kiddos. So the younger ones, that's a little bit harder. Um, but I, in the past, when I worked with older, you know, high school age, having that conversation, addressing it head on, um, and it's a really hard conversation to have. And it, for me, it's sitting with it. It's if you, if they need to yell at me, they can yell at me. If they need to be mad at me, they can be mad at me. And I think then the most important part is that I show up next week because I think for our kids, a lot of times they're not able to have those big feelings. They're not able to be mad. They're not able to really express that and then have that person come back. And so that to me is how we work on it and we repair it. And I know you were mainly getting at the parent part. <laughs> and so I think that part, I'm still learning. I'll be honest. <laughs> I'm still working on it. Um, I think it's, again, psychoeducation on why I made that call. It's reminding them that they're not in trouble with me, that there's we, this is about us learning and how can we be better parents. Um, that's harder when there's parents who are not ready for that. And that's something that I, as a clinician, have to learn to accept because you can't help people who don't want help. And so um, it's an ongoing journey of learning and lots of supervision. <laughs> And it's going to be different every time you have to make one, right? right. And, and yes, you know, the, the child, you do have to navigate that relationship after a report. But at the end of the day, most of our kids are young and they, they're dependent on the parent mm -hmm. to bring them to treatment or to sign those consents for treatment. So we have to get the parent on board too. You do have to assess by the client. Like I've had a number of clients where I called with the mom listening while right. I called, or I had the mom make the report while I was sitting next to her. Mm -hmm. Other cases where I didn't tell that mm -hmm. I was making a report because I suspected it would put the child in more danger. So it is such a difficult clinical judgment we have to make case by case, really. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and then at the end of the day, hope you can repair that relationship so they continue. Because you're right, that can be really curative, can't it? Yeah. Um, to learn that 
there can be safety in a relationship, even if you're angry. Right. Mm-hmm. Moving on to our next question, you know, we we often see clients with really overt experiences of trauma. We do see sexual abuse. We do see kids who've witnessed shootings, um, who are living in homes with domestic violence. And we talk about trauma work, but what are the key elements of working through those experiences? Could you sort of describe your sessions, your therapeutic process? What does trauma work look like? Like what, what do you do? Yeah. And, you know, I paused when I read this question and thought about this, because for me, it's really all about the relationship. And I know that sounds so simple and so almost obvious, but it is to me the strongest intervention there is. And it is a lot of times our children that experiencing trauma are having ruptures in their attachment relationship or they have an insecure attachment with caregiver. And so for me, it's about forming that secure attachment, having a space where they do have a nurturing, predictable, stable, consistent adult in their life. And so that is my main goal of trauma work with children. And we do that through a lot of play. I work with the young ones. So for For us, that's play Um, at the beginning of treatment. It's for me, empowering them to make the decision and following their lead. And so allowing them to choose what game we want to play or what activity we want to do and kind of giving them that space to have a sense of control. Um, It's empowering them. They might not ever have that in other aspects of their life, especially when they've experienced these overt instances of trauma a lot of times that power is taken away. So in our space, I want them to have that power. Um, So it's following their lead. I think role play a lot of times um, can be a powerful thing. So I'd say we begin by establishing relationship and that takes a long time. That can take weeks, that can take months, um, that takes a long time. But, and then it's following the kiddos lead. And then for me, it's slowly kind of incorporating a routine uh, structure And because I think a big part of trauma and how it impacts our brain, it messes with our sense of safety. And we have this hyperactive stress response system where our body doesn't know what safe is. And a big part of safety is this predictability. It's this consistency. And so I want our trauma, I mean, I want our therapy room to be this safety, sense of safety. And so we do that through instilling predictability Uh, making sure we do kind of a similar routine in our sessions every week. Uh, We also are going to be talking a lot about coping skills, coping skills around self-regulation, how to kind of calm our bodies down, how to navigate the fact that our stress response system is always alert. And so that can be through different sensory toys. That can be through breathing exercises. That can be through physical movement. Um, So yeah, for me, it all comes back to the relationship. And then um, slowly incorporating that predictability, that stability, and incorporating coping skills with an emphasis on self-regulation. You know, most sort of textbook trauma work, you know, uh, a lot of our evidence-based practices around trauma work, they assume the traumatic experiences are over. Mm -hmm. So yes, there was sexual abuse, the sexual abuse is over, or 
So now let's go move on to healing. But for a lot of our kids, community mental health kids, the trauma is in fact ongoing. Mm -hmm. Um, The community violence is still there. They're still food insecure. Whatever's going on, the trauma is ongoing. So how does trauma-informed treatment work when the trauma itself isn't resolved? Yeah, I think acknowledging that first and foremost, like you just said, a lot of our evidence-based practices, a lot of the trauma theories out there kind of talk about trauma as a a one-time thing or it happened a couple of times and it's over. And so just that, acknowledging that it's not over, that our kids are still experiencing it is is huge and underrated. Um, And so for me, it comes back to that relationship, that secure attachment. It's about showing up every week. It's about being consistent and reliable and being that sense of safety, that source of safety for the kiddo. Um, I think another thing, and this is kind of related to your last question too, is that a lot of our trauma theories and, well, I wouldn't say a lot, but some of them believe that the only way to heal from trauma is to talk about the trauma and to actually, you know, talk about the event or talk about what's going on. And I think with kids that can be really hard. And that for me is not the expectation. And it's understanding that we might talk about it. We might play about it. We might talk indirectly about it. Um, But it's understanding that just because we're not talking about what's happening at home or what happened at home doesn't mean we're not working toward healing. And so, again, going back to those kiddos that are continuously experiencing trauma, it's the relationship and then it's working on those grounding skills. It's helping them learn how to feel safe in their own body. Um, especially when they might not feel safe in the environment that they're in. Um, It's making them feel seen, validated, heard, understood. Um, It's giving them the space to talk about it if they want to talk about it and also reminding them that they don't need to talk about it too. Um, And then, you know, the older ones, I think it's empowering them to establish boundaries if, if they're able to safely do so at home. It's giving them resources. Sometimes it's making a safety plan of what can I do if mommy gets drunk and becomes violent. Um, it's all those things. But again, for me, it comes back to that relationship and that consistency, predictability, reliability. And understanding themselves, right? Understanding, okay, I can't make mom stop drinking, right? but I can perhaps change how I react to it. Right. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Dr. Perry wrote, the traumatized child lives in an aroused state, ill-prepared to learn from social, emotional, and other life experiences. She is living in the minute and may not fully appreciate the consequences of her actions. The problems then snowball. The child acts impulsively and understands their own behavior from the context, I am bad or I am stupid. They struggle in school and in relationships, and that message is reinforced. Adults around them respond with frustration and escalating discipline, and the cycle continues. One of the most effective tools to change a child's brain response is something we can all access, the interpersonal relationship. Researchers including John Briere, Carrie Clark, Catherine Klassen, John Conte, and others have identified a positive, predictable, and nurturing relationship as one of the most powerful tools in helping a traumatized child recover. 
evidence shows that this relationship can matter more than any specific intervention we might offer a child. The relationship to the therapist is key, but more important is the child's relationship with the caregivers. Dr. Reem Shafi et al. Wright, rooted in attachment theory and further supported by the premise that the quality of the child caregiver dyad is paramount to psychological well-being, effective therapies focus on strengthening the parent-child relationship. We've talked a lot about sort of the work with uh, the child. I love how you refer to it. I think he's tiny human. Mm -hmm. um, I, I love that term. Mm -hmm. I may adopt that. But we've talked a lot about that. But how about with the caregiver and sort of what work do you do to shore up the parent-child relationship? Yeah, I think that is huge. That's critical in any work we do with children, whether they've experienced trauma or not, is recognizing that our kiddos spend a lot of time with their caregivers. They spend a lot of time at school and then they go home to caregivers at home. And so that parallel work with parent is extremely important. Um, again, kind of going back to our conversation earlier about that non-judgmental curiosity um, understanding, understanding that our parents are experiencing a lot of stress, um, that part is all huge. So to kind of shore up that relationship, for me, it starts with the, all of that. And then also psychoeducation, um, talking about therapy, talking about what therapy is. It's educating parents on trauma, on what, um, what happens when our brains experience trauma and the overactive stress response system and what those behaviors might look like. For me, I found that that can sometimes almost take the blame off of parents. I think sometimes parents blame themselves for their child's behaviors or they're frustrated and they don't understand why their child is behaving that way. And so sometimes I've noticed that once we can educate and kind of help explain what's going on, um, that can be kind of an epiphany and a starting point. Um, I think too, acknowledging that a lot of times the parents that we're working with, they themselves have experienced trauma or are experiencing trauma. And so we can model that kind of attunement, that validation in our own work with the parents. So for me, I'm doing a lot of collaterals where I'm calling parent and um, kind of talking parent through parenting. And, and in that, there is a little bit of therapy with parent as well. Um, and just being understanding of everything that they've got going on, on on their plate and they're doing their best. And so always coming from that approach of understanding they're trying their hardest. And I guess it's an assumption of every parent is trying to do the best that they can. And if I come into that relationship with that framework and that mentality, then I think that the parent feels that and they are not on the defensive and they're more so on the, okay, let's work together. We're a team. You know, for so many of our parents, they they themselves never received the childhood experiences that would promote sound mental health. They were traumatized themselves. They lacked that attachment themselves. So how do you help them to parent differently when they themselves were never nurtured? And this is such an important question that I think I experienced with all 24 of my clients and their caregivers. And I, the answers seem so obvious, but it's acknowledging this. It's putting that into words. It's verbalizing this. It's 
recognizing this. And again, that seems so obvious and common sense, but it's not. And sometimes we're so wrapped up in the client that we forget about the caregiver. And so it's, yeah, being curious again, back in the assessment, just as much as I want to know about client, I want to know about caregiver. I want to know about caregiver's relationship with their parents, how they were raised. Um, and so being curious about their attachment style, circling back to ACEs, it's wondering, you know, did parent experience ACEs and are they still experiencing any ACEs? And then again, it's that modeling. I can model that secure attachment. I can model the attunement, the validation, responsiveness, regulation, all of those important skills. You know, how much more complicated, though, is it when actual violence has taken place in the home? You know, we we talk about how a stressed out or disengaged parent, stressed out because of poverty, whatever else, is different from a violent parent. Um, how does that difference play out in treatment? And do the parents get the help they need? It's tough. And for me, the first thing that came to mind is our role as mandated reporters. And so when we are seeing actual violence currently taking place in the home or recently taking place in the home, there's a part in my gut that goes, oh, oh man, there's a chance I'm going to be calling Child Protective Services. And and that's hard. It's hard to, we said that, that phone call is hard to make. Um, knowing that I might have to do it again in the future is hard. Um, but so for me, it's ensuring the child's safety. It's making that phone, phone call to the Child Protective Services if I need to. Um, it is understanding that caregiver might not be safe at home, especially in our intimate partner violence homes or if one parent um, has substance abuse, knowing that caregiver might not be safe. And so I'd say it definitely plays a role in treatment. I see sometimes more extreme behaviors or I see the opposite. I see more withdrawn, disengaged client. Um, I think in terms of parents getting treatment in an ideal world, I think all human beings can benefit from therapy with or without abuse. Um, and so for me, I can educate caregivers on therapy and the importance of therapy. I can provide resources. Uh, I certainly can't make the caregiver go to therapy. Um, but I think having ongoing violence at home uh, definitely complicates everything just because our goal is to keep clients safe. And so when we know that that is at risk, that can make everything a little bit more tricky to navigate. Um, and so going back to those coping skills and that self-regulation, it's helping client learn how to feel safe in their body, learn how to regulate. Um, sometimes it's creating a safety plan of what can client do when there is that violence happening at home. And it's helping client have a space to talk about it if they want. Um, sometimes our kiddos that are experiencing violence at home, our therapy sessions are their escape. And it's the place where they can have fun and they can feel safe and they don't have to talk about the violence. And so I know that can seem kind of counterintuitive when we think, oh, you're working on trauma you're talking about the trauma, but sometimes, especially when the violence is ongoing, our space together is the, is free and it's safe and we don't even mention it. Um, so I think it's also understanding that. And But yes, definitely ongoing violence at home or violence that's happened at home complicates the situation. 
So do you do the trauma work with the child alongside the parent-child work? Like what's sort of the ordering or the process? Yeah, I think the answer here is it depends, which I know is social workers' (laughs) favorite phrase. (laughs) It depends. Um, I think in an ideal world, yes, I would like to be working with client and with caregiver, but I'd say that's usually not possible for various reasons. You know, for example, let's say, caregiver is the perpetrator, is the abuser. Um, not only would it be not safe, but it would be inconducive to our therapeutic process to be bringing them in. Um, let's say, you know, there's oftentimes parents just aren't available for accessibility reasons. They work full time. They don't have access. They, you know, there's various reasons. Another is caregiver maybe just doesn't want to. Caregiver's not ready. They're not at that stage. They're not ready for therapy. Sometimes it's client doesn't want caregiver there. And so I think, you know, for me, I would love to be able to do the family work in conjunction with the work with the child, but I don't think it's always possible. Um, I think it can work both ways and it's very situational and it very much depends on the situation, um, the type of abuse, the age of the client and so forth. So what about the parents... Um, who are just not ready or just not invested in change. Um, How do you work effectively with a child despite their parents? This is hard because like we said, kids go home to their parents, kids go home to their caregivers. And the younger the child, the more reliant they are on their caregiver. And so this, this is tricky Um, Again, I know everyone's probably tired of that coping skills (laughs) phrase, but it is learning, teaching our kiddos coping skills, teaching them that self-regulation of what can I do at home. I think a big part of this is also, I was trying to come up with this word and I don't know what this word is. What is the opposite of internalizing? Not external. Externalizing. Yeah, that doesn't (laughs) seem right though, but like I think a lot of times with trauma and children, we internalize. And so we blame, we have that guilt, that shame. And so when our parents are not able to to own it or to come to therapy and work on changing, I think the work with children is helping them, I guess, externalize, (laughs) de-internalize, because externalize doesn't feel right for me. So I'm making my own word, de-internalize. Um, and work through the shame, the guilt, the the blame, and all of that. Um, and then I think too, it's going back to our relationship and letting the therapeutic relationship be an example of a healthy, secure attachment. Um, it's showing them that yes, caregiver maybe isn't ready to change. Caregiver maybe is not there yet, but that doesn't mean that all adults are that way. And that doesn't mean that it's not possible to feel safe with an adult. And so it's reminding that in a way, instilling that hope, um, you know, attachment, attachment is so important for our future relationships and that schema of what does trust look like and how, how do adults make me feel? And so maybe at home that they don't feel good. But with me, maybe I can show them that, hey, there is an adult that cares and it is possible to feel safe with an adult. And so kind of altering our attachment style is something that we can do even when parents are not able to change. That makes a lot of sense. And, you know, I used to work with 
teenagers quite a lot. And so sometimes that was, you know, your parents, they are who they are. So how are we going to help you be okay Mm -hmm. despite them? I get your struggle with using externalizing because in the therapeutic world, that means like acting out. Right. It doesn't feel right. That means when you're showing that maladaptive behavior is when you're externalizing Mm -hmm. your struggle. So I like, I I understand (laughs) you're saying take sort of the blame away from being internal, but you don't switch it to acting out. You switch it to, you know, this, this pain is exterior to me. Like I didn't cause this. This isn't my fault but I don't need to cope with it by acting out either. Exactly. So I understand why you, you. you struggle <laughs> with those words. Like, oh, she she's absolutely right. <laughs> Externalizing, it doesn't fit in Mm-mm. a clinical context. Right. So, Re- Rebecca, can you share a success story of your work uh, with, a, with someone who experienced real trauma, but at the end came out stronger on the other side? Yeah, and I love this question because it was such a great reminder of why we do this work. And so I, a couple of years ago, worked with a little girl. She was five years old in kindergarten and she was referred to school-based mental health services um, for a lot of really negative self-talk and dangerous negative self-talk. She was saying things like, I am nothing. I should just die. You don't love me. Um, I'm stupid. And those all started when she was three and a half. So at a very young age. And this client unfortunately witnessed some very, very serious, severe domestic violence at home. And when I say severe, I mean, mom was almost killed on multiple occasions um, by client's father and client witnessed all of it. And or partial directly, partially indirectly, but client was in the home for all of it. And so, you know, this makes me think of a lot of the things we've talked about today because it was, you know, mom was a survivor of some extreme trauma herself and mom was not in a place where she was ready to go to therapy. And so it was kind of, and mom was also in denial. Mom was of the belief that client was too young, client didn't remember, client didn't hear it. And so, you know, kind of circling back, we went through that whole process of starting with education and getting that buy-in from mom and slowly but surely building that relationship and getting to the point where I was able to explain to mom, you know, look, I know client was young and I know you did your best to not fight in front of client, but the reality is client was exposed and she might not consciously remember, but subconsciously and in her body, she does remember. And so, and that took time and that again, was a really hard conversation because no mom wants to hear that, especially when, you know, she did her best to hide it. And so slowly but surely, it was a lot of work with mom. It was a lot of work with client. With client, you know, she was so young, five years old. Um, So most of our work was through play and uh, through modeling. And eventually we had a dollhouse. So it was a lot of baby dolls and a lot of dolls. And uh, slowly but surely, she would, there was a lot of fighting in our play. Um, And so it was a lot of indirect, just kind of verbalizing the play that I was observing. And slowly but surely, we started to hear that the things that the daddy was yelling at the mommy were the things that my client was saying about herself. And so we were kind of able to work through that and identify that those were all things that client had heard um, and started to believe about herself because those were things that daddy was yelling at mommy. And so 
again, that de-internalizing <laughs> and separating it from herself and realizing that it wasn't her fault and it's not her um, was big. And we got to the point where she stopped saying those things. Um, unfortunately, I left the agency, so I didn't get to see quite the end of her story, but those uh, dangerous negative self-talk was definitely decreasing. Um, that we were building that self-love, that self-confidence, that self-esteem. And by the very end, mom enrolled in individual therapy herself. And so that to me was a success story. Um, and I'm hoping for many more in my future. That's a, that's a beautiful success story. And so dad was out of the picture by the time you met the, yes. the family in this case. Yes. Restraining it must have been order. really painful. Yeah. Must have been really painful for mom mm -hmm. to draw those connections then and understand how much what happened really did impact her child. Mm -hmm. That must have been quite a struggle for her. Mm -hmm. And also, I think, too, just reliving it. You know, she too had to kind of relive it as client processed. It brought it all back for mom. And so it was a lot. It was definitely heavy, but I think. Again, that power of early intervention and prevention, which is why I work with tiny humans, and I'm sure you too. And um, to me, that was a real example of getting in there early um, and starting the work young before. Abs absolutely. You know. Absolutely. She has her life ahead of her. Yes. So wonderful work. Mm -hmm. You know, it, I end every episode on a note of hope. Um, this is really hard work we do, but I think child mental health, we carry an element of optimism to be able to do this work, um, especially in a community mental health setting. So for you, Rebecca, what are the bright sides of this work and what still brings you hope? I think honestly, for me, working with children is just that it is hope. It's children, there's so much hope and circling back to that early intervention and prevention that is all full of hope. And I use the term tiny humans because I think that tiny humans all have this magic of being so present, so pure, so innocent. And I think we all have that in us. And I think working with tiny humans reminds me of tiny human magic and trying to find that in myself every day. So it's that hope and that tiny human magic. And that's what brings me back day after day. I think that's my uh, favorite answer yet <laughs> in all of these episodes, Tiny Human Magic. Um, thank you so, so much. It was just an absolute pleasure speaking with you, sharing your insights and your understanding of these tiny humans and the impact of trauma on them. Um, it, it's It's been a great conversation. Thank you for the work you do and thank you for talking with us. Thank you for having me. It's my position that by shining a light on these issues, admitting that they are in our own backyards, it will be easier for a struggling child to get some help. Ideally, we can all begin to be kinder and more supportive of each other. In My Backyard is brought to you by The Guidance Center, a children's mental health agency in Long Beach, California. In My Backyard is produced by Trisha Costales and Matthew Murray. Thank you to J. Vincent B. for original music. All other music licensed through Soundstripe. Thank you to our listeners and supporters. Please visit tgclb.org 
or text HOPE to 562-262-5689 to make a one-time donation or join our Hope and Healing Club to become a monthly donor today. Subscribe to In My Backyard on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.